Nobody in my family is a Christian. I'm sorry about that. Have you tried talking to them? Yeah, I was going to tell my sister about Jesus one time, and she was downstairs using the computer. So I went down and I was going to tell her about Jesus, but all that came out was, can I use the computer? I have a Bible verse about that. Would you like me to go get it? Yeah, that'd be a great help. Adrian! Did you hear that Kevin just wrecked his brand new Honda? No! Oh man, he had it coming! I knew this was gonna happen! He so deserved it. He is a terrible driver. He is awful! I think it's a bunch of when he bought that car. All he did was talk about that car all the time. It was ridiculous. I'm glad. I hear you on that one, huh? Well, anyway, I have that Bible verse for you. 2 Timothy 4.2 Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Okay. Amen. All right. Hey, open your Bibles to the book of James, also known as Iacobos. That's right. Iacobos. Literally Jacob, as we saw last week, is literally the name of this book, the book of Jacob, but we'll keep it James, okay, as it got changed in the transliteration from the Greek to the uh, uh, English. All right. But the book of James, go ahead and turn there. We're going to read the first couple verses. We're cruising now. And uh, verses one, we'll probably go to three. I don't know if we'll make it to three. Uh, but uh, you can have some faith and apply it if you'd like. But uh, the book of James, uh, chapter one, let's read uh, the first couple verses to grab what we're talking about today. Here's what he says. James a what? He's a servant, a doulos, we saw last week, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Now again, we saw that speaking of the early church at the time this was written when they were finally dispersed in Jerusalem. Should have done in the first place, but they were hanging around uh, home central, so to speak, and they finally got out uh, because of that. Now, here's what he says. Verse two, remember, that, remember the pur purpose of the book. Verse two, he says, consider it what? Absolute torture. Oh, I'm sorry, wrong translation. Uh, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever things go your way. Oh, I'm sorry, this must have the purple cover on it, the Barney version, I better get rid of this translation. Uh, let, let's move on. He says, no, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why? Well, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance is the context that he's talking about there. Now, if you were here last week, let me, uh, before we get started, let me, we just read that, let me read it to you in the expanded Greek, okay? It's considered pure joy. Here's what it literally says. Be constantly rejoicing. In the Greek, the verb tense is ongoing. It doesn't stop. Not just once in a while, not just when it's convenient. Be constantly rejoicing. Consider it a matter for unadulterated joy without any admixture of sorrow. Whenever you fall into the midst of variegated trials which surround you, knowing experientially that the approving of your faith, that faith having been put to the test for the purposes of being approved and having met the test, you're a true Christian, has been approved and that this approving process produces, listen, a patience which bears up and does not lose heart or courage under trials. Now that's a mouthful. That's a lot more. 
That's why I love studying the Greek. That's why I love doing expository studies whenever I can. And you pull back, it's not that the English is wrong, but Greek is a very expressive language. Koine Greek, I don't obviously think it's by chance God chose of all languages for the New Testament to be written in. It was Koine Greek. It's a very exacting, uh, very expressive language, okay? Uh, definite rules and things of that nature. But once you get into it, it's just like, woo, brings the whole thing open. We'll see just even uh, today, you, uh, Lord William, uh, there's four different Greek words for love. And we'll deal with that in the marriage study, okay? So it's all the same word, love, but each one has a little bit different connotation. Let's continue on. Last time we saw that the book of James, or literally Jacob, we saw that the purpose of this book, listen to this, was the acid test, okay? The acid test that was being sent out to the early church, okay, uh, to demonstrate true and false Christianity. Why? Well, another uh, quote I didn't get to read uh, uh, last time is, is simply this, okay? It is simply to uh, test the genuineness okay, of something, okay, the genuineness of something. Now, now something that is very, as we saw last time, something that is very valuable, okay, as we saw last week, uh, Mickey, with the, the analogy of the testing of gold, is gold considered valuable? Yes, it's very valuable, okay, and so because it's so valuable, you don't want to get ripped off, you don't want the fake gold, you don't want the fool's gold, right, so you will gladly, especially if you're purchasing it, you want to make sure it's real, well, this is what this guy says. Well, hello, then how much more than salvation? He says this, he says, whether it's gold or silver or precious metal, whether it's diamonds, precious stones, or money, anything that is in and of itself of intrinsic value is subjected to testing to affirm its true worth. And the most valuable commodity in all the world is the commodity of eternal salvation, right? He says it's priceless. It's the highest value. To have a right relationship with the living God is to possess the most valuable thing in existence. And all those people who believe that they have possession, listen, should subject that to a process of testing to determine its validity, right? Just like with gold. I mean, if you guys, uh, uh, ladies, uh, when your husband proposed to you and gave you that diamond ring, did you, you just... Well, you probably would have started off wrong if you had, can we go have this tested to see if this is zirconium? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I don't recommend that, but by way of analogy, you know, maybe you thought about it. <laughs> is this thing real, right? Because it's a valuable thing. And that's what he's saying when it comes to salvation. So therefore, it makes common sense that it should be put to the test. This is way more valuable than hello, gold or diamond. He says, there are people though all over the world who if asked whether they have salvation, they would reply yes, but they're wrong. True salvation needs to be subject to examination, subject to testing. This is a biblical concept. The testing of salvation is throughout scripture called for. And again, if you were here last week, that's exactly what we saw. It's not just the book of James, certainly the book of 1 John. That's the same thing. All the different tests. People, you say this, but you do this. I'm sorry, you're a liar. And the truth of God is not in you. You say this, but you love the world. I'm sorry, the love of the Father is not in you. No, you failed the test, okay? Jesus talked about the wheat and the tares and the sheep and the goats. There's people in our Camp that are not Christians. They may come to church services, but they're not saved. And man, the last thing you want to get wrong, the last thing you want to fail the test is salvation, right? That's the purpose of this. And again, as we saw, the timing was to also thwart Satan's evil plan. Okay? The church at this time of the writing, this puts this at, obviously, most likely people would say, this is the first, the earliest book of the New Testament. And when it was written, it was written to the scattered tribes, the early church that got uh, persecuted in Jerusalem and they finally went out into the world. So wouldn't it make sense if you were Satan that, hey, the church is finally getting out there 
and they're getting out there to be witnesses for Jesus and supposed to share the gospel, wouldn't it make sense to mess that up, to pollute it? To have that group of people going out that there's a whole slug of them that are only Christians in name only? So they give a false impression of true Christianity and they certainly give out a false gospel. Wouldn't that be just like Satan? So you put all that together with the timing, the written of this book, no wonder the first book of the New Testament is an acid test for true and fake Christianity, okay? So that's what James does. In fact, I like this. This pastor did the same thing, okay? You know, we talk about the timing of this aspect of when he, uh, uh, James is writing this to disperse the, the falsehood, the fake Christians to expose them. This guy did it, listen, with his very first sermon at his very first church he was ever pastor at. And he says, I preached on this. Open your Bibles to Matthew 7. Matthew 7, the classic passage here. This is cool. You got some guts, man. This is, this is awesome. Matthew 7, man. First pastor at first church, first sermon, man. Right out of the gates. Let's take a look. Matthew 7. And uh, verses 21 through 23, okay, the context before that, of course, Jesus is laying on the line, narrow uh, and, and the white gates, okay, the many and the few. Uh, you can tell them by their fruit, you know, uh, things of that nature. And then he comes to uh, down here, uh, the wise and foolish builders, okay. But before that, he gets into this. He says, now, here, here's the facts, guys. Not everyone, this is Jesus speaking. This was the guy's first sermon. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will what? will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, many, notice it's not just a few, not just an aberration, a small number. What's the word? Many, okay, will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Well, wait a second. They gotta be a Christian. They gotta be a true child of God because they prophesied. Uh, have you ever heard of false prophets? Okay, it doesn't mean that you're saved. It's a quote unquote Christian behavior. It doesn't mean that, you can't be a counterfeit. Uh, then he goes on and he says uh, the next thing. Did we need to prophesy? And in your name, drive out demons. Do demons ever get driven out by a non-Christian? I think that's part of their uh, chicanery is that they will allow for the appearance of that so that it, it, by means of something other than the name of Jesus Christ, whether it be through rituals or holding up a cross, you know, like Hollywood versions of that nature, because it keeps people away from the truth. You look at Acts, I think it's Acts uh, chapter seven or chapter nine when it says the seven sons of Sceva, and they're driving out uh, demons in Jesus' name. There's no indication necessarily that those guys are even saved, okay? So, so even with that aspect, if you take a look at it, it doesn't necessarily mean that, I mean, Christians, we know that we have that in the authority of the name of Jesus Christ, but the enemy is very deceptive. So that doesn't necessarily make you a Christian, okay? And then he says this, and he says this, well, and we, we not only did that, but then he says, it, it, we perform many miracles. So when somebody does, uh, performs a miracle, that means they're always a Christian. no. Hey, you're being duped. Revelation 13, the Antichrist is going to appear on the scene with what? With the false prophet, with many counterfeit signs, wonders, and miracles. So just because there's all this activity and spirit, that doesn't make you a Christian. And Jesus says, so if you're coming to me, and if that's what you're banking your salvation on, we did this, we did that, we did that. What's he say? He says, listen, I'm going to tell you plainly, I never knew you. Notice, I didn't know you once, and you lost your salvation because you can't. I didn't know you in the first place. You were fake. And then he says, I tell you what, guess what? away from me, you evildoers. That was the guy's first sermon at the first church. Now listen to his rationale. He said, I remember preaching that and saying, I don't want anyone to be in this church and think they're a Christian when they're not. Now that's a good shepherd. He says, and I remember before all of that first sermon was over, listen to this. 
He said two of the leaders of this church, prominent in church leadership, after that sermon, confessed the reality of non-saving faith, knew they weren't Christians, and instead of coming to true faith, they left. The leadership in that church. Wow. He says some non-Christians in the choir left. And he says, but there were some others that came to true faith. And he says, I simply tell you that to say, look, when James takes his first shot at the scattered flock going out in the world, what he is concerned about is the genuineness of their faith. So he gives them tests to measure it. And he says this, and I would say to you that any pastor needs to do this, okay? Because I'm telling you, I, 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 we were having a conversation the other night, and I said, I really think that much of the stuff that we have to deal with in the church today is dealing with non-Christian behavior. And I think many times we, the church, the multiplicity of our behavior and our programs and all of our energies and all the functions and all the things that we do and the, the th is what we're trying to do in essence is we're trying, we're spending our time and our resources and our energies in trying to get non-Christians to act like Christians when they can't. They need to get saved, but they're coming to church services. And we, and we don't want to run an acid test. We don't, oh, I can't say nothing. Bible does. I mean, I, I don't know the heart, but at least we can give them the test. And then that test will start to reveal some things. And if they do scatter and they lead the faith, what did 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, 19, we saw last week say? They weren't saved in the first place. If they left, the reason why they left is because they never belonged to us. If they belonged to us, they would have remained to us. But they're going to show that they never belonged to us in the first place. Okay, let's continue on. The first acid test then, you got the whole context. The first acid test then of this amazing book, okay, is the uh, acid test of, okay, trials. Okay, and specifically, not just trials, you're gonna go through trials. Everybody on the planet goes through trials, but here's your acid test. Do you go through trials with joy? Christians will go through trials, by and large, with joy. And so this is the acid test. Do we have joy in our trials? Do we hold on to Jesus Christ tightly in our trials? Why? Because we are followers of Christ. Christians, Christians, right? And did Jesus have any trials that he went through? Slightly. In fact, ultimately culminating into the cross, right? But what does the Bible say? Jesus ran from the cross. No, he not only endured the cross, but the Bible says that he endured it for the joy set before him. That's Hebrews 12, verse 1 through 3. He says, and let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he, Jesus, endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So, Hebrews says, consider him. Jesus, you're going through trials? Consider him, follower of Christ. Consider Christ, okay? He who endured such opposition from sinners, so why? Why should I do that? So that you will not grow weary and you will not lose heart. In other words, so you don't lose out on joy, okay, is the acid test. Notice that Jesus did not blame God for the cross. Notice he didn't blame other people. Notice he didn't get mad at God for what he was going through. He didn't threaten people. He said, I'm going to call the lawyers. He didn't say, I'm going to get even with you if it's the last thing I do. What did he do? He not just endured it, guys. He didn't just like, mm, stiff upper lip. He endured it with joy that was before him. And that joy, of course, as we all know, number one is doing the Father's will. Did you know it should be joyful doing whatever God says to do? Are we firmly convinced that every command that God gives us is for our highest good? And that God's way is the best way, not just another way. 
And so it should be joyful knowing that that's where life is at. You want to find out what life is? Give up your life, as Jesus says. Okay, then you're going to find out what real life's all about. Following God is the best way. So number one, I think that his joy was doing the Father's will, as he said repeatedly. But number two, I think, and this is what we usually focus on, and I think it's true, obviously, is it was for the joy of our soon coming salvation that he's going to have brides be with him forever. That's a great thing, okay? And that's what James is saying. If you're truly a Christian, a follower of Christ, Christian, then you're going to have a joy, by and large, even in the midst of your trials, which means you're not going to go uh, the opposite direction. If you go in the opposite direction, it either means that, unfortunately, Christian, you're in a spiritual ditch or detour, which is not good. I mean, Christians, we do go in the ditch once in a while spiritually, don't we? Sometimes we get in a little detour, but God spanks us back on track. So number one, it's because of that. Or number two, if you persist, hey, James, maybe it's a sign you're failing the test. Because if you go through difficulties, Christian, and you don't turn to God, but then you blame God and you blame other people, you get mad at God, you threaten them, you call the lawyers and say, I'm going to get even with you. And you sit there and say you're a Christian? I don't know the heart. But something, something ain't right. Either you're in a spiritually messed up ditch, Christian, and you need to get out of that. Or can we deal with the other viable option according to the scripture? You failed the test, you're not saved. And the reason why you can't do it is because you don't have the Spirit of God in you that empowers you to do it. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love. What's the second one? Joy. You don't do it on your own. That's a work of the, of the Spirit of God. But that doesn't happen unless He's in you. And He's in you if you're saved. All right? You see what I'm saying there? Okay. Now, this is the purpose of the test. And this is what I really think Jesus is talking about, this joy aspect. Matthew 13. Go ahead and open there. Matthew 13, the parable of the sower. Okay. Matthew 13, if you find Matthew 13, what do you do? Go to verse 18, so that's good. <laughs> Matthew 13, verse 18 through 23, let's take a look at uh, what's going on here. And of course, this is now the explanation of this. I love it when Jesus is giving parables and uh, the disciples go, they're acting, they're like, hey, yeah, he's cool, we're with him, the guy. <laughs> you guys, listen to him. <laughs> and then they get behind private doors. What would that mean? What, huh? <laughs> so we I love it. We do the same thing, don't we? Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, preacher, preacher. What's he talking about? <laughs> yeah, and anyway, so he gives the explanation. Now, we'll skip at least to that part. And this is what he says. Uh, he says, listen, man, uh, to what the parable of the sower means. Now, when anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and he what? Snatches away what was sown in his heart. So obviously that person's what? They didn't receive it. They're not saved. But they're there in the midst. They're listening. They're hearing the message, but it just doesn't ever compute. The evil one just keeps snatching it away, okay? Let's continue on. He says this, now he says, uh, uh, th uh, this is the seed that's sown along uh, the path, okay? Now he says, now the one who received the seed that fell on the rocky places is the man who hears the word, okay? And at once receives it with what? But listen to how long that joy lasts. But since he has no what? Root, okay? He lasts only a short time. When what? Here's your acid test, just like James is saying, when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he what? He quickly falls away. Again, 1 John 2, verse uh, 18, 19. He clearly says, guys, that it, you, you fall away. You turn, I, I'm not a Christian anymore, and as we saw last week, uh, I'm sorry, you weren't saved. 
There was this initial joy. And I think sometimes people who, who respond to, I don't know what, Jesus being a life enhancement, come to Jesus, come down the altar and, and he'll make your life perfect and wonderful. No mention of the law, no mention of the sin, that God is holy, no mention of a hell and that you're grasping onto the work of Jesus Christ. It's just come to Jesus and say this thing and do this thing and fill out this form, okay? And then somehow you're saved, right? I think people initially, our flesh likes to get into religion because our flesh likes that because it's self-justification because we make ourselves feel better because after all, I go to a church service. You know, I'm not like you guys. I mean, I do everything else you do during the week, but I, on Sunday, go to a church service and I might even help stack chairs and the potluck next door and by cracky, I do this and that, blah, blah, blah. So, excuse, what? And so I, I think we like that initially, okay? But that doesn't make you say, you fail the test. Here, here, you sitting there say, see, you sit there and you say to the world, oh, I'm a Christian. How many people in the world have you met that said that they're Christian? You ever wonder if it was true? <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of people say they're Christian. Now, when the world finds out that you are a Christian, whether you really are one or not, but you're professing that, what do they do to you? They want to make friends with you. They love you. They encourage you along. <laughs> they're going to persecute you, right? And so that's what he says. These guys don't stand the test. They don't have the joy. They run. They're fake is what he's talking about. Now let's go to the next category. He says, but uh, since he's got no root, he doesn't last, okay, it comes and he quickly falls away, the, the persecution. Now, the one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the what? Worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. And what we see last week with the first John in the acid test in that book, it says, if you love this world or the things of this world, and that's your mode of life, then the love of the Father is not in you. What's that mean? Not a Christian, right? And the, the deceitfulness of the, of the wealth is what he's talking about here in this, the worries of life. The Bible says, keep your mind on things above, not on this earth. We're not saved for this earth. We're going there, man. Keep your mind up there, woo-hoo, right? And, and, and how many guys realize that uh, eating food comes in handy, <laughs> right? If you have some transportation, that's kind of cool once in a while. Right, a place to live, and I'm not. You, it's okay to have things, but if that's what you live for, instead of Jesus Christ, something's wrong. You got two options. Again, you're either a Christian who's in a ditch, or guess what? You're failing the test again. And Jesus tells us, I believe, what is the acid test? How do you come out of this parable of the sower and demonstrate you're a real Christian? Well, here's what he says. But the one who received the seed that fell on the ground soil is the man who hears the word. And listen, this guy understands it. He gets it. And so guess what? Because it's true, he produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Now, I love that breakdown there because that's the game that we play. Well, maybe I'm not a Christian because, you know, I mean, AJ, he's got so much fruit. He just, he's got this big chuck wagon that he hauls behind him to haul it in. And it's everywhere. I can't, I only got this little wagon. It's just, it's a red flyer. I love red flyers. It brings back memories. But, but that's all I got. No, he didn't say everybody's going to do the same. He broke it down. Some are different because some have different gifts and different things and different paths. But, but you're going to bear fruit. And I think that the fruit that James is talking, and certainly Jesus mentions here, is listen, one of the fruits is he, yeah, joy. Specifically, when hard times come is what he's talking there. It's a powerful witness. Now again, uh, God's word stays in your heart. It doesn't exit your heart. You maintain that joy in your trials. Persecution cannot pull you away and you keep on bearing fruit. Guess what? You pass the test. You're a real Christian. And again, this is what the scattered church was going to face right off the bat because they're going out in the world and guess what the world's gonna do to you? They're going to persecute you. 
They're going to try to trick you into focusing on this world and getting all worried about this world and the worries of life and deceitfulness of wealth. And James is saying, hey, listen, my church, the church of Jesus Christ, not his church, Jesus' church is going to have a joy in the midst of it. I don't care. You can't, just, you can't stop me from, from uh, serving Jesus Christ. And that becomes a powerful witness. Now, that's the purpose of them being scattered in the first place. Remember, we saw last time, Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But they weren't. They were stuck in Jerusalem. So God raised persecution, and they spread out. Okay? And as they're out there, it's not just, okay, let's go get into isolated clusters again. As you're out there, tell people about Jesus. And when you're out there, and they're going through trials, and you're going through trials, except you stand up with joy, a true one, not a fake one. Because we never do this on Sunday mornings, do we? I, I've used this analogy. I, this, is, this is funny. We play some funny games as Christians, don't we? You know what I'm saying? I mean, literally, last night, our house could have burnt down. What was left of our driveway, uh, we pulled out of the back uh, of the driveway, ran over the cat, killed it, uh, got in an argument with our spouse all the way on to church services, and we get here, open the door, and the greeter says, hey, how you doing today, brother? And what do we say? Fine, fine, you liar. <laughs> Isn't that the game we play? Really fun. I'm fun. Are you tired? Right? He doesn't want us to be fun. I'm not saying a fake phony joke. Yeah, that sounds great. Right? But there's something about it. Yeah, you're going through it. And yeah, it kind of hurts. But there's something inside you. You still crack that smile. There's still that positive attitude. And you still are more concerned about telling somebody about Jesus than your own pain. That's a powerful witness. And that's what James wants. So when the church goes out, I want that true church to shine because you're going to be persecuted. You're going to go through trials just like everybody else. But are you doing it with joy? Okay. And, and you're thinking, well, is, is that possible? Yes, it is possible. But I think we also need to realize the detriment of not doing that. L listen to what, what this guy said. He says, when I travel uh, uh, and give my concerts, he says, I get a view of the modern day American Christian church that most people never see. He said, I've played in every denominational church I can think of, and as a result, I've discovered what the world hates the most about Christianity, Christians. He said, it would be okay to hate us for the right reasons, for our love and for our joy and for our good deeds, but the problem is they hate us for our hypocrisy. We don't like to admit that the world is tired of hearing us say, praise the Lord. They're tired of seeing the bumper stickers without seeing something Christ-like going on inside the car. And they're tired of our t-shirt philosophy and our rings and necklaces and our phoniness. They're hungry and thirsty for the truth. They want to see Christians being Christians or else to them we're just another trip. And he says this, are you excited about Jesus? Can, can, can other people see the joy of the Lord in your face? Listen, he says, I've noticed too few Christians radiate the presence of the Lord in their life. They look like they were baptized in vinegar. Now that'll preach. I'll stomp on that one. Woo! He says, they seem to have this image of Christianity that requires them to have a grim, gray look on their face. It's like they're saying, well, praise God, it's such a burden to be a Christian. He said, what kind of a testimony is that? He said, if you're happy, and you should be if you're a redeemed child of God, you certainly ought to be happy, then you better show it on your face. He said, that's what the world's looking for, to see that in the life of the Christian. The world is tired of seeing hypocrites. If it weren't for religion, he said, I would have become a Christian two years earlier than I did. As a result, I didn't become a Christian by going through a church service. I couldn't have become a Christian because I wouldn't be caught dead in a church. All the churches I had seen had been full of hypocrites. 
I wanted to know if these supposed ambassadors for Jesus really could show me Jesus Christ by the way they lived, but I never found one. He said, be rest assured, there's a lot of searchers out there just like I was. They may not tell you they're looking for God, but they are. And when they look at your life, do they see him? And he concludes with this. He says, listen, if you're a pew warmer, I'm not telling you necessarily that you're doomed. I'm telling you, you're dooming others. I'm telling you that you're, uh, I'm not telling you that you're hellbound per se. I'm telling you you're sleeping while other people are sinking into a fiery eternity. And he says this, he said, guys, we are in a sorry mess. The world is sick of it. God is sick of it. It's enough to make him vomit. Wow. No wonder when you understand the timing of this book, the first thing right out of the gates, the purpose of this book is this baby is an acid test for true and fake Christians. Because the last thing you want is for Christianity to finally go out in the world and is flooded with a bunch of fake Christians who do not have the power of the Holy Spirit to give them the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so when the hard times come, they whine and complain just like everybody else. There's not a stitch of difference. And yet we keep saying, oh, come to Jesus. He's awesome. He's awesome. Man, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, Paul said this, he says, Romans 8, 9, he says, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you're in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ, right? And this is what he's saying. No spirit, no belong to Christ. And guess what? You don't have the ability supernaturally to have that joy in the midst of your trials. Case closed, right? And again, I'm gonna give you one more uh, a, a reason, just kind of a double one, that was the, the first quote. Give you another reason from other people who admitted that this lack of joy in Christians, dare I say, even professing Christians, now when you understand if they're not saved in the first place, it's not a shock anymore, is it? Okay, they failed the acid test. But I'm telling you, this is a huge thing. It drives people away. So James puts out this test, do you have joy in your trials? Do you consider constantly rejoicing without any absolute sorrow? Woo, yeah! Because if you don't, you're either a Christian who's in a ditch and you're given a bad witness. Or you need to wake up. You're not a Christian at all. And you need to get saved. But here's the fruit of that. Listen to this, a couple quotes here. The German atheist Friedrich Nietzsche said scornfully about Christians of his day, I would have believed in their salvation if they looked a little more like people who had been saved. Wow. I wonder what books he would have wrote if he became a Christian instead of what he did write against God. Interesting. Phillips Brooks, listen to this. He said, the religion that makes a man look sick certainly won't cure the world. Wow. Billy Sunday, he said this, to see some Christians, you'd think an essential to being one is to have a face so long you could eat oatmeal at the end of a gas pipe. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Oliver Wendell Holmes said, I might have entered the ministry if so many Christians didn't look and act like they were undertakers. What's the common thread here that's missing that the world wants to see in us? Joy. We're going to have trials, they're going to have trials. Listen, Jesus told us that. You're going to be persecuted, especially if you want to live a godly life in Christ. They're going to get you. Okay? In the midst of it, when you have joy, what a witness. Gandhi. When he had, was asked by E. Stanley Jones, the missionary, uh, he said, Mr. Gandhi, though you quote the words of Christ often, why is it that you appear so adamantly to reject becoming his follower? 
To which Gandhi replied, oh, I don't reject your Christ. I love your Christ. It's just that so many of you Christians are so unlike your Christ. Wow, that's interesting. And action. Is that a monitor? Is this still coming through the sound? How are we doing? Okay, that's cool. All right, uh, a high school girl. Uh, this is an actual letter that a high school girl uh, wrote okay, uh, to her friend who invited her to the church services on Sunday, but she didn't show up. This is what she wrote. She said, I attended your church service yesterday. Uh, during the singing, but of course you weren't there. Thanks for the weird invite. Uh, but during the singing of the hymns, I was surprised to note that some of the church people weren't even singing. Uh, between their sighs and yawns, they just stared into space. Uh, the pastor's sermon was very interesting, although some members didn't seem to think so. They looked bored and restless. I said, I said good morning to one couple, but their response was less than cordial. Uh, my, my parents don't go to church services, and I came alone yesterday hoping to find a place to truly worship. But I'm sorry, I didn't find it at your church, and I won't be back. Wow. The fruit of a joyless Christian is detrimental. And if you just can't seem to ever have any kind of joy and you do walk around all the time looking like you were baptized in vinegar or before you came here, you've been sucking oatmeal out the back end of a gas pipe, maybe it's because you're not saved. And you need to get saved and experience the joy of salvation. Amen? Or if you are a Christian, you need to wake up. And not just get your heart right with God and get your heart off the things of this world because that'll drag you down 100% of the time. Get your eyes off the people. Get your eyes off this world. I had an instructor always say, keep your eyes on Jesus Christ because people will let you down and this world will let you down. But you keep it on Jesus, nobody's bringing you down. You just keep serving him with joy, okay? That's what we need to do, okay? But again, what, what's the side effect? If we're in that ditch Christian, we're given the same impression as the person professing to be a Christian and it's not good. Okay, we're giving a bad witness. That's why James sends out this letter. Now, the Greek, again, puts the pressure on. Okay, that's the phrase there. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Again, it literally says, be constantly rejoicing. Consider it a matter of unadulterated joy without any mixture of sorrow whenever you fall in the midst of variegated trials that surround you. Okay, so how do you do this? Well, number one, it's the spirit of God. He gives you that ability, okay? But number two, I think he gives the answer in the very next verse, okay? He says, listen, the reason why you can have joy is not only because it's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, is because there's value in your persecution. There's value in your pain. There's a good plan. There. There's something positive that is going to result, yes, even of this trial. And knowing that experientially, we'll see that in a second, gives you joy. So it's not only a work of the spirit, is what he's going to say, but it's the knowledge that something valuable for your good is going to result. And that gives you joy. It's like a double dose. Okay. And that's what he says there. He says, well, what's the value? Well, it's the next verse. He says, but because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work. Listen, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, here's an exciting question. I know it's early, but how many guys would love to be a mature Christian? Huh? Praise God, all two of you. Uh, raise your hands. The rest of you will keep praying for you. Uh, how many guys would like to be a complete Christian? 
Now we're getting better. How many of you guys would like to be a fully equipped, armed to the teeth, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Spears? Yeah, your hands are going up. I'm not even done. Locking nothing, Christian. Woo! Yeah. Then guess what? Turn to somebody and say, bring on the trials. Because that's exactly what James is saying. Listen, you can have supernatural joy in the midst of your trials because it's a work of the Holy Spirit of God and every true born-again Christian has the Holy Spirit of God at the moment of salvation. But the second thing is you can still have joy, a double dose of joy, because you know, and that's what he says, because you know, and it's the Greek word gnosko, it means you know experientially, no doubt whatsoever, that man, God is going to do something awesome. And what he's going to do is he's going to make me in this trial, he's going to make me the very thing that we pray for, right? Oh God, make me into that strong, mighty Christian for you. Oh God, please, I want to be a, a, a great follower of Jesus. Please, God, use me to bear fruit. Anybody pray stuff like that? You, now you're afraid to raise your hand, aren't you? Okay. <laughs> right? And so God says, yeah, I'll do it for you. Here comes the trials. Because out of our trials, that's how we become mature. Wouldn't it be awesome if somehow we could just pray that prayer, oh God, make me into a strong minded Christian, and we go to sleep at night, and, and, and we put the Bible underneath our pillow, and through osmosis, it leaches through our brains, and then we wake up in the morning, boom, boom, yeah, mighty mature Christian, I'm not lacking anything. Wouldn't it be awesome? Wouldn't it be awesome if you could go to Walmart and buy it in a can? Unfortunately, they don't. They do have lower prices every day, but that still doesn't work. Okay, uh, but whoa, it doesn't happen that way. See, I like what one author had said. He says, we all, Christians, we want to be transformed into a powerful follower of Christ, a, a mighty fruit-bearing Christian, Christian. We all want to be transformed into that on a bed of light, love, and grace. But we don't want to realize that it comes through the same path that our Lord walked, through persecution, insults, and pain. I'm convinced over the years that I think a lot of times the reason why our growth as Christians sometimes is painful is because we're resisting God's procedure. And we've still got a part of us, the old man, who wants it to come easy. And really, I think that part of our pain is we, we don't want to let go of this world. We don't want to let go of the thinking of this world. And so we, we grab onto life and we say, no, God, not this. Don't let this happen. No, God, no, 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 no. And I had another pastor, he'd always say, listen, as Christians, we don't put your hand, don't pray. When you pray and surrender something over to Jesus Christ, leave it there. But the problem is we still got our hands on the altar. And what hurts, Christian, is because then God has to pry our fingers off. Ouch, 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 ouch. He says, we need to live our lives like this. Not clenched fist. No, not this. this is, it's, I, got it, I got my mind made up. This is how my life's supposed to go. I mean, the world says it's going to be great. No. You surrender it and keep your hands off the altar and leave it like this. And so what happens, he says, it's a much better procedure. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. He puts something in, he puts something out. If he wants it in, hey, enjoy it while it's there. If he wants to take it out, he takes it out. Hey, okay, praise God. The pain comes when we do this. And we forget this is not our life, it's his life. Surrender. That's what I think the pain comes from. Now, here's one of the things that he mentions that's going to bring us that joy. And the first thing that he talks about is we're, he's gonna give us this thing. This is awesome, okay? This is better than that Superman cape. If you can imagine that. Apparently, we need to work on imagination. Okay. <laughs> 
He says, I'm going to give you something. And man, when you realize this is what I'm doing for you, you're going to, you're going to have joy come out of your ears, man. And the first thing that he mentions there that he's going to give you uh, is that old uh, persevere thing. You know what I'm saying? Persevere, okay, is what he's talking about there. It's the Greek word hupomene. Let's say that. All right, I asked you to say that, but uh, I appreciate the volunteer. You, there you go. You got it, Bobby. Thank you, man. And it means this. Listen, here's what he's going to give you. He's going to give you a steadfastness. He's going to give you a constancy. He's going to give you an endurance. He's going to, listen, give you the characteristic of a person who is not swerved from their deliberate purpose and loyalty to faith and piety, even in the greatest trials and suffering. How many guys would like to have that? Amen. Well, how does that happen? Bring on the trials. Turn to somebody and say, bring on the trials. All one of you. But anyway, that's right. Uh, <laughs> that's what he says. I'm going to give you that, but going through the trials. Well, how does that happen? Well, you learn to persevere. Well, perseverance by its very meaning is like a, an enduring patience, not just patience. It's, it's the ability to bear up under over an extended period of time, which means it's going to take some time to learn that lesson, to have that ability to, I don't care what you throw at me, I am not going to quit. That comes with time. And so that means it comes over, as he says, variegated trials. There's going to be a whole bunch of problems over a period of time. You can only learn to persevere over time. Full of trials. How bad do you want it? Okay, then bring on the trials is what he's talking about. Okay, that no matter what you went through or go through in life, no matter what anybody says, nobody is going to dictate your walk or service with Jesus Christ. You're just going to keep moving. You get this attitude like Paul had, I believe. Did Paul go through a couple trials? Yeah, just a little. Okay, listen to this guy's attitude. This is awesome. I love it. He says, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8 through 9. He says, we are hard pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed at times, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. In other words, we may be knocked down, but we are never knocked out. We just keep getting back up. You know what I call that? I call that the spirit of Rocky. Right? This is a guy's show. You know what I'm saying? Rocky Balboa, right? And that first one, why was that such an amazing thing? Because his face was so puffed up. No, not just that aspect. It was just like no matter how much they beat that guy, why did it just the emotion just watching that? And it's just a make-believe show. Just Because that guy was like a, a human onion the head, man, he was a mess. He's, dude, you're, how do you, he kept getting up and he won. And you pummel that guy. That's what Paul said. I don't care how much you beat me, the spirit of Rocky, if you will, is all over me, and I'm getting back up. That's perseverance. That's one, just one of the powerful things that James is saying. I'm trying to work in you through these extended period of trials that you can have. Wouldn't you like to have the spirit, if you will, of Rocky Christian? And no matter what this world does to you, throws at you, says to you, makes fun of you, mocks you, does to you, hurts you, literally sometimes punches you. I may be knocked down, but I'm never knocked out. That comes when you go through hard time. Now, knowing that, what does that start to do? Hey, that's kind of joyful. God, what are you doing now? That's what he said. He said, he said, be constantly rejoicing, not just considerate joy. Be constantly rejoicing, the Greek says. Why? Oh, this is another blessing. Don't get hung up on the package of the problem, but see through the package through the eyes of faith in God's word that says, blessing. 
There's a blessing in this thing. Yes, it hurts, but it's a blessing. I'm doing something wonderful. At the end of the day, if you get back up off the mat, I'm gonna do something awesome. And when all is said and done, you're gonna become an even stronger, more effective, fully equipped Christian. But when do you say the woohoo factor? In the midst of your trial. Because you're so steadfast and focused on what God says, not what your feelings say, that you look, what Jesus do? It wasn't there yet because he had the process to go through on the cross. He endured that for the joy set before him. And that's what James is saying, okay? And knowing that gives us a continual joy. Nothing can slap us uh, that smile off our face, even the pain that we go through. Nothing can knock us out. Uh, 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 no and, and, and here's the point. Why would that be the first thing that James mentions? This hupomene, this, this, this powerful character of perseverance that nothing can slap that uh, face off you. Because again, what's the context of him writing this? The early church finally is out there. They're going out into the world. They're finally being those witnesses for Jesus. And that world is going after them and is going to persecute them. And here are these people with the spirit of Rocky all over and just keep getting up, keep telling about Jesus, keep loving them. woo What is the world gonna say? Either number one, you're crazy. Or number two, can I have that? Maybe they called it Walmarticus back in Roman days. I don't know. But did you buy that somewhere? <laughs> Where did you get that? Can I have a can of that? Pour it on me. No, it doesn't come that way. It comes by becoming the true born again Christian. It really is possible, guys. God really, I call him the ultimate recycler. Okay, everybody's into this environmental stuff. And recycle this, recycle that. Recycle. Hey, God's the ultimate recycler. He's the only one that can recycle everything we go through in life. Everything. And turn it around for our good. That's Romans eight twenty eight, right? Let me give you one example as we close of how, yes, this really can happen. Okay, guy's name's Dave, true story. And uh, he grew up in a loving, committed family in South Texas. And uh, the last thing on his mind was going to war. But at the height of Vietnam War, he received his draft notice. And soon he joined the Navy and he served as a riverboat gunner uh, to the elite uh, Brown Water Black Berets. Uh, all seemed fine until about eight months later when Dave was literally changed forever. He was on a patrol getting ready to throw a phosphorus grenade to burn away some brush in the near banks when it exploded right next to his face. Uh, and Dave said, I had half of my face uh, and my right ear burned completely away. I have blood spurting from an open artery in my right hand and I could see my heart beating in my chest. And then to make matters worse, the phosphorus continued to burn. So when the medics put him on the stretcher, he burned right through it and fell on the ground and hit his head. So they wrapped him up in a blanket, uh, soaked in river water, and was finally loaded into a helicopter. But the medics thought he was dead, so they didn't do anything to try to help him, which required Dave to take matters in his own hands. He said, from underneath the blanket, I summoned all my strength I had left and yelled, medic! He said, that got everybody's attention real fast. As soon as he was in the burn unit of the hospital, getting treatment for nearly two years, going through countless painful surgeries to repair and replace his skin, he said one day, uh, early on in his time there in the hospital, to make matters even more worse, he explains how he watched the wife of the man who lay in the bed next to him, who was also badly disfigured, say to her dying husband, listen, you're embarrassing. I couldn't walk down the street with you. And as Dave heard those bleak words and watched that woman, listen, set her wedding ring on her husband's bed and walk away. He knew no one could love him, especially his own 19-year-old bride. So after seeing his own completely disfigured face in the mirror, he tried to pull the cord 
in an attempt to disconnect the IVs that were keeping it alive. And he says laughing, he says, I pulled the wrong one. <laughs> but then the time came when his wife, Brenda, uh, did make it to the hospital ward and Dave prepared himself for the worst. You know, haven't seen that other lady. Uh, but instead of leaving like the other woman uh, did to her husband, she bent down and kissed what was left on his hand and said, welcome home, Davy, welcome home. And he says, uh, when she called him Davy, he knew that he wasn't gonna have to face his future alone. So with a rock solid faith in God and his wife that stood by his side through the toughest of times, he's learned something more important than a pretty face. He's got a testimony. And today with his joy and humorous style, he is enthusiastically received both nationally and internationally as a public speaker. He's involved in mission work all around the globe. And in every setting, his message is one of hope. And he doesn't listen by drawing upon his experiences of loneliness, disfigurement, and pain, as well as life's triumphs, to weave a message of courage, commitment, and survival that touches and transforms all those who hear him. If there's anyone who's ever learned how to turn lemons into lemonade, it's Dave. Why? Because the foundation of his hope, listen, the source of his joy is his loyal faith in Jesus Christ. This is what James is wanting to make sure that the early church does when we finally get out there and do what we're supposed to do. And dare I say, not just the early church, but even here today at sunrise. That even, listen, if your face got blown off and you became totally disfigured and scarred for life, would you, like Dave, still be able to put a smile on your face? At least what you had left of your face for the lost could you look beyond yourself? Could you look beyond your pain and realize that God's not only doing something wonderful to you, but he wants to use you in that something wonderfulness that he's doing so that other people might join you one day in heaven where there is no more disfigurement, there is no more pain, there is no more persecution, no privation, that they get to be there with you. Isn't that worth it? No stinking wonder the first thing that James does when he writes this in the context of the church going out, he puts out the acid test. And I don't think it's by chance knowing that the church is about to get persecuted. They left under persecution. They're going to continue on. We know in church history for many centuries to come. Okay. But he says, do you got joy in your trial? Because I'm convinced that that is one of the most wonderful, awesome ways that we even today get to witness uh, for Jesus Christ. Lord willing, next week we're going to begin a journey of, that was just one that we see in this text that uh, James is telling us uh, that we can have in the midst of our trials, okay, is to learn to persevere. But I've learned over the years, I don't know about you guys, there's a whole bunch of other great reasons, okay? And apparently when you talk about something in multiplicity, you have to talk like that. No, I don't know why I did that, but it just worked for me. Uh, what do you think, Paul? Uh, but no, we're going to see a whole bunch of them because I want to I camp on that for a little bit because I want us, I felt led that I think we really need to get it solidified, Christian, that there really is a possibility for us to have, as the Greek says, constantly rejoicing, even in the midst of our pain, so that we can realize that, listen, God's doing this or he's doing that or he's doing this and he's doing that. I got 20 that I come up with of awesome things that God is doing Okay, in the midst of our pain so that we can get that solidified in our hearts so that not if, but when the next trial comes, if you're not currently going through one, hey, take heart, you're gonna go through one eventually. Another one is coming down the pike. Yeah. Okay, but we get so solidified in our hearts that we could start walking around, I would say, with a much more effective, not a fake one. Yeah, my house burnt down right on my cat. Everything's fine. Not that fake one. I'm talking the real one that is so powerful, like a moth to a flame. People say, I gotta have Jesus. Could you tell me? How do you do that? 
I see the tears, but amidst your tears, I see a smile. I can't do that. How do you do that? Can I have that? And then we'll take time to look at the reasons why God's doing. And that's what he says. He says, literally, we'll get to this Lord one next week. He literally says in the Greek there, to look forward. And that's what we need to do. Get it off your pain and look forward and acknowledge the phenomenal reasons, multiplicity of reasons why God's allowing this. And so start having that joy and be that powerful witness. Amen? Let's pray. Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church, and I hope you enjoyed today's study. But before you go, let me ask you one final question. Are you sure that if you were to die today, that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple things with you. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the Bible also says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness is death. In other words, when we die... And it's coming for each one of us. We're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, but it's going to happen. The Bible says, therefore, since the wages of our sin is death, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and not to heaven. And that's bad enough, but to make matters worse, we don't want to admit this. God already knows. He knows uh, all of our behavior, everything, our thoughts, what we've done, what even we're going to do. He knows it all. He's gone. Even though he already knows this, we don't want to admit this. And so, out of love and mercy, God gave us something called his law, or the Ten Commandments. It's kind of like his x-ray into our heart to show us what he already knows, that he is holy and that we are not. And it's this unholiness or sin that separates us from him. Let's take a look at God's x-ray, if you will, his divine law, to show us what he already knows. The Ten Commandments, uh, the ninth one, says this, You shall not bear false witness. Okay, that's called lying. Okay, and if you've ever told a lie once, which we all have, myself included, the Bible says that makes you a liar. Okay, the, the, another commandment says you shall not steal. Okay, uh, and you might think, well, that's something that everybody does. Well, it doesn't make it right, and it demonstrates what God is trying to show us, that uh, we all have sin, and it's separating us from him. Even if you took a pencil in the third grade from somebody, if you did it without permission, that's stealing. And so now you've become a thief. The Bible says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. And how interesting it is and unfortunate that the only name under heaven by which men might be saved, the name Jesus Christ, has now become a common cuss word. The Bible says that God is so holy that even his name is holy. If you've taken the Lord's name in vain, and used it as a cuss word or even flippantly. The Bible calls that the sin of blasphemy. And so now you become a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus says if you even look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. And finally, the Bible says uh, you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? Well, again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred is the same as the sin of murder. The only difference is you pulled the trigger, if you will, in your heart. You wish they were dead. And in God's eyes, it's the same thing in principle. Folks, that's only just a couple of the Ten Commandments. We didn't even go through all of them. But I think you're starting to get the picture. The Bible is correct. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, myself included, and that we are separated from God as a result. And so when our time comes, we're not automatically going to heaven. We are headed for judgment. We are headed for hell. Now let me tell you the good news. 
The good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to save us. Jesus Christ died on the cross. It was the death penalty of its day. He paid in full uh, the price for our sins to be forgiven. Let me give you an analogy. For instance, even today, we could see that a person could commit a crime. Uh, they, they cannot reverse it. The, the sentence has been passed. The judge has uh, slammed his gavel, and they are ushered off into their jail cell. And in this particular crime, they are going to receive the death penalty. And so they're behind bars just waiting for the time, waiting for the call for them to go and uh, receive the death penalty. But believe it or not, as we know, there is a way that a person can get off a death row. And that is if the one in authority, the governor, would grant them a pardon. Now, they didn't earn it. Uh, they certainly don't deserve it. And there's nothing they could do uh, to earn it because nothing can reverse their crime. Okay? Yet the one in authority has that ability to grant them a pardon. Well, can I tell you something? That's what God has done through Jesus Christ. The cross was the death penalty of the day. God sent his one and only son to die on the cross, to take the death penalty in our place, and that if we would just receive his pardon for all of our sins, God is willing to allow us to get off a death row. He's willing to forgive us completely of all of our sins. That's the good news that I want to share with you. God loves you. The Bible says that God is not willing that anyone should perish, but everyone come to repentance. Won't you, if that's you, call upon the name of Jesus Christ right now? Won't you ask him to forgive you for sins? The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Won't you do that now, wherever you are? Please. Take God up on his amazing, loving offer. I'll let you down. Man will let you down. People will let you down. But God never will. He wants to adopt you into his forever family. He loves you. He's willing to forgive you of anything and everything you've ever done, past, present, and future. It's amazing. Please, call upon Jesus now. Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church. If there's anything that we can do for you, please don't hesitate to ask. Our number and information will come up here on the screen here shortly. And remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless. Thank you for watching this presentation from Sunrise Baptist Church. If you would like to send us a letter or any other kind of postage, you can reach us at 1780 Betty Lane, Las Vegas, Nevada, 89156. For more information, you can give us a call at 702 452 8599 or email us at bcrone at getalifemedia.com or you can visit our website at www.getalifemedia.com. Billy Crone and this ministry can also be found on Facebook and Twitter. Join us for services at www.sunriselv.com.